Hello and welcome to episode 97 of UConn 360. That's the only podcast on earth that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. Coming to you from beautiful stores, Connecticut. My name is Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. Joining me as always, my colleague, Julie Bartuka. Julie, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks, Tom. How are you? I'm doing good. Commencement season is behind us. Uh, mm-hmm. Spring has sprung. It's a beautiful time of year here in Connecticut. It's more like summer, though. I don't know what happened to our springtime. We don't Feels really like we have skipped, it anymore. We kind of skip right over into summer. Uh, this week, uh, we have a fantastic guest, uh, someone who I, I got to work with on a very exciting story that we'll talk about, I'm sure. But before we meet him, we have a couple of news items. It's awards season here at UConn. Yeah, congratulations are in order for several students and professors at this point in time. And of course, you can read about it all in detail at UConn today, as always. But wanted to just give a shout out to a few of those. Recent graduate Zoe England is the first winner of the Gilman McCain Scholarship in UConn history. History professor and one of our past guests, Manisha Sinha, has been awarded the Guggenheim Fellowship to continue her work on a book project about the Reconstruction period after the Civil War, and five UConn students have received grants through the Fulbright U.S. Student Program. So congratulations to all of them. Absolutely. And speaking of congratulations, I'd like to extend congratulations to Dean Andaleva of the School of Fine Arts, who has been named the Interim Provost and Executive Vice President for Academic Affairs and has been at UConn since 1999, when she was hired as a joint appointment in art history and women's studies. And since 2015, she has been the dean of the School of Fine Arts. And I've had the opportunity to work with her a couple of times. And I can't say enough good things about her. She's a fantastic person to work with. Um, very excited to see what she does as interim provost. And congratulations to Anne. And now... Without further ado, let's meet our special guest. This is an interesting story of how this came about, Julie, is that right? Yeah, just kind of a fun, you know, these Yukon connections that we all have. So back in 2020, which seems like light years ago at this point, we had Avinoam Pat, the Doris and Simon Conover Chair of Judaic Studies and the Director of the Center for Judaic Studies and Contemporary Jewish Life on the podcast as part of our Brave Space series, uh, which you all, I think, remember. And I mentioned after we spoke with Avi that one of my most memorable courses at UConn was Literature and Civilization of the Jewish People, which now is called Who Are the Jews? Jewish Identity Through the Ages. And Avi shared my shout out with uh, the professor of that course, Professor Stuart Miller. And a while later, Professor Miller emailed me just to say hi and thank me for for mentioning it. And, you know, we reminisced a little, caught up a little on what happened in the the ensuing years since I took that class. And um, I said I would love to have him on the podcast. So finally, after, I don't know, a year of talking about it, we have Professor Miller here. Stuart Miller is a professor of Hebrew history and Judaic studies and the academic director of the Center for Judaic Studies and Contemporary Jewish Life. He is an expert in the history and literature of the Jews of Roman and late antique Palestine. And throughout his career, he's worked closely, as you mentioned, Tom, on a lot of archaeological projects having served for many years on the staff of the Sepphoris Regional Project in Israel. And some big news is that Professor Miller is retiring after almost 40 years here, and we are thrilled to have him here on the podcast. So welcome, Professor Miller. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. As I mentioned earlier, uh, you and I uh, met a couple of years ago when we were working on what I like to think of as a sort of an Indiana Jones type adventure here in in Eastern Connecticut. It was excavation that you did with uh, Nick Bellantoni, who was the state archaeologist at the time and who was retired. Tell us about that. I mean, what did you find and and sort of how did that whole project come about? Yeah, well, it was uh, rather fascinating. I love telling that story, actually. And um, I included it in a book that I was writing at the time that I was finishing, a book manuscript on ritual purity 
in Roman Palestine, Roman Ga in the Galilee, in the north of Israel, in the period that I specialize in. And here I get this call from Nick that an email that I, he ne I need to come to Chesterfield uh, and see what's going on there. Of course, I didn't know where Chesterfield was, neither did my GPS. Found out one day after class, and I did this really, certainly not wholeheartedly, because I'm interested in contemporary events, but I like writing about the past, the way past, real antiquity, you know, a couple thousand years ago or so. And I, I really couldn't find this place. It wasn't on the GPS. So I see these three guys hanging outside the woods, um, <laughs> and they flag me down. <clears throat> I see Nick is one of them. And what happened was he was talking to, to the folks from the Jewish Federation from New London who know me also, and they all got excited. They said, well, we have to have Stuart Miller down here to look at this. Um, they didn't know that I really wasn't that terribly interested in seeing whatever they had there. But I went, and what I knew was that there was one of the earliest, if not the earliest, Jewish farming communities that were funded by Baron de Hirsch from Bavaria in the late 19th century. And I grew up in New Jersey, so there were a lot of these sites in South Jersey, and I know people grew up on them. And they were in Connecticut, and these are the two major places in upstate New York, Argentina, Canada. The idea was to get Jews out of the cities and doing other things because they all weren't able to find jobs on the Lower East Side. Not that these farming communities turned out all that well. Some of them did, but they were mostly dairy farmers. This particular group had gained historical recognition for the site, both locally and eventually nationally. And Nick was involved with the New England Hebrew Farmers of the Emanuel Society, they call themselves. They're a really lovely group uh, headed up by Nancy Savin. And at any rate, they've done a wonderful job at salvaging the history of this place and keeping it on the radar of, of, of Jews and people interested in the history of, of the United States during this period. So uh, they took me into the woods and they showed me the burned down synagogue. And I remember distinctly saying to Nick, look, this is your kind of archaeology. You know, if you think you can find something here, it's just a there's barely anything to see above ground. He said, well, do you want to see the Shochet's house? The Shochet is the ritual slaughterer. And that interested me a little bit more. And he walked me down the hill in the woods and I see there are walls. And I look over the wall and I look down and remember, I'm writing a book about ritual purity practices in the antiquity. And I look over the wall and I look down and sticking out of the ground was a ritual bath. And I said, you didn't tell me you had the pool. And it didn't even register to me from the website that they had this and the importance of this. And I just had to contain myself. And I looked at Nick and I looked at the others. I said, the only mikvah ritual bath that I know that has been excavated from this period, roughly from the mid-19th century earlier, is in Baltimore. But that's Baltimore. In other words, Baltimore, lots of Jews. This is Chesterfield. What is this doing here? <laughs> and I said to Nick, let's go for coffee. And over coffee, I said, we're digging this summer. You get the equipment, you get the staff you need, and I'll get the students. And that's what we did. And Tom covered it and it became you know, 15 minutes of fame around the world. I got emails from Israel and all over the place. It was really quite exciting. And I had to add a postscript to my book because there were methodological issues that I was raising in my own work that pertain to this particular project and the, the work that I do and I specialize in and this project had in common. What did this particular, and I'm not going to pronounce it right, mik mikveh? mikveh? Yeah. Mikveh. It was it was built in a way that you wouldn't expect for that time, right? Mm -hmm. That that yeah. it was built and what what did it uh, tell you and how did it help kind of shape so, what you knew about this practice? Well, I had spent the last few years before this learning all I could about ancient 
uh, ritual baths and the ones that we have uncovered, which don't always work in terms of the ways in which we know they work today and the ways in which they're described by the, the rabbis since the ancient period. So I was expecting this one also to follow much later prescriptions of the rabbis that are well known, because this is not the fourth century Galilee. This is late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, we haven't established an exact date, probably early 20th century. But at any rate, how it would work, and the students were finding uh, that it was wood-lined. And that is an issue that goes back to the Talmudic period and that I was well aware of. So every time they found another piece of wood, I said, don't tell me you found wood. And this went on for, for a couple of weeks. They said, Professor, this whole thing is lined with wood. I said, oh, oh really? And that was problem number one, issue number one, challenge number one, challenge number two was how it was, you need water that's directed usually from a rooftop and directly into the pool without any human involvement. Okay, so it's rainwater is considered pure as long as humans don't interfere with it. And we have certain ways of doing that and gathering the water and so on and so forth. And this this followed a completely different model, completely acceptable. But I had to figure that out and it took, took time to do that. But it also these two aspects were very different than anything that people who know the modern mikvah would expect. And in my case, since I know not only the ancient mikvahot of the rabbis, but also the ones that we've actually discovered from antiquity. You know, I thought I had a leg up on how all this worked. Yeah. <laughs> right here in Connecticut. Yeah, right here in Connecticut. But it was great. I mean, I didn't have to go to Israel to excavate. I was 45 minutes from home and, uh, <laughs> you know, got to sleep in my own bed. It was great. I'll, I'll post a link to the story in the show notes because there's some great pictures that Pete Moraine has shot. I mean, it, it's really an impressive site too. It's largely intact and you can really see how, how big it was. But, you know, in some ways you were the, the perfect person for this, not only because of your expertise in Jewish history, but also because of your expertise in archaeology. But as you said, normally the archaeology you do is, is concerned with the much more distant past. Just a footnote to Chesterfield, which will tie in beautifully. I used to joke that you're not a real archaeologist until you've excavated at least two sites. And the only site I was interested in, and my ticket into archaeology, was the site of Tsipori in the ancient Galilee, uh, which is Sepphoris in English, derived from the Greek. And uh, this was a site that was three miles from Nazareth, was very, very important in the history of the earliest rabbis. And in the writing of uh, major works uh, of the rabbis that are still read and used today, including the lesser known Talmud, the Talmud of the land of Israel, the Mishnah was very possibly edited and concluded. It's the basic work of Jewish law and so many other rabbinic writings that take us into what's called late antiquity, fourth, fifth, sixth centuries. So my fascination was as a graduate student was with this place because I had known about it from studying these writings of the rabbis. And my problem always was, well, I want to know more about the rabbis who lived here. I want to know about this place because it doesn't seem to be on anybody's radar are but mine. Every Talmudist rabbi who I've ever you know, spoken to, oh, Tzipari, yeah, it's on page so-and-so in the Talmud. Yeah, I said, it's the hundreds of places in the Talmud. That's the <laughs> issue. That's the problem. And nobody's paying attention to it. And so here I thought the only book that had been written about Sephiroth was in 1909, that here in the 1970s as a graduate student, I thought that here I was going to be able to write about a place that 
people should know about. And I was able to say just about anything I wanted to say. So years went by and I was in contact with Eric Myers, who was known for his excavations in the gallery from Duke University. And I actually found a letter I, that I wrote to him because this was, you know, real mail in the old days, introducing myself and telling him what I was working on and how I was following him around the gallery, you know, when he wasn't there, visiting all the sites. And constantly I would ask him about, well, how about Sepphoris? And the response I was usually getting was, it's not likely to be excavated, which I took to mean in my lifetime. And then by the mid-1980s, there were two two groups that were doing soundings at Sepphoris. And before I knew it, I was invited by Myers to be on the team. So I was not trained as an archaeologist. Archaeologists usually train by experience, by being in the field. And here I was mostly the academic organizer for the staff for some many years to come and organizing their the teaching and gave talks at the excavation. And I got my hands dirty. I unique experience of having excavated with some of the Duke students a toilet. <laughs> and a toilet is in a is in the museum. There's a museum, a Roman villa that includes the famous Dionysian mosaic. And luckily they don't say that, you know, Miller discovered this. <laughs> <laughs> but in my family, but in my family, that's 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 uh, Abba's toilet. So uh, anyway, and then my kids when they visit there, you know, I'm very proud of it that we have to tell my grandchildren now. So here I was, and I always used to say, if you're not involved in more than one excavation, and then what happens in 2012? Boom. So I don't mind when people call me an archaeologist any longer. But in truth, I, I consider myself somebody who came to archaeology by trying to figure out. Well, what's beyond the text? What's beyond what this literature is telling us, which is written by, in this case, the rabbis or modern texts that tell us about this place, Chesterfield? You know, newspapers, writings. I, I'll just tell you something very interesting. I just put out an article on Philip Roth's Newark, because we're both from the same neighborhood. It's the same interest. The same interest is you get a perspective of the past from literature and from texts, and you think you're really there. And in my case with Sepphoris, it was from the rabbis who lived there. And I want to know, well, yeah, well, tell me more about the people amongst whom these rabbis lived. They weren't all rabbis. Most of them were not, and many of them weren't even Jews. So that was my interest in the archaeology offered that window that other sources were not offering. I consider myself very fortunate in having had this insight and experiences and contacts that I was able to utilize. The book was at the intersection of texts and material finds, okay? And there's a subtitle, longer subtitle, which mentions ritual purity. And the book is dedicated to Eric and Carol, who introduced me. Here, you'll get this immediately. At the intersection of texts and material finds for Baruch Levine and Lawrence Schiffman, who inspired my scholarly interest in texts. And for Eric and Carol Myers, who facilitated my engagement with material finds. So I got colleagues and mentors in there that represent the two sides of my training and my, my uh, interests. That's really neat. Yeah. So the course that I took was in the Hebrew and Judaic studies section in the Department of Literatures, Cultures, and Languages. And so Judaism is such an intersection of so many things in general. You know, you're looking at the culture, the religion, the ethnicity, there's so much tied together. And then you're looking at all these regions of the world, all these different facets. And so that kind of brings together experts from all over the place, from the classics, from the different languages that you might be studying. And you are the chair of that section Actually, of the yeah. department. So why is it important that we that we have something that juxtaposes all those so, things? And can so, you know, th that course, I 
think I've taught just about every semester. And I, I don't think anybody really does such a thing, teaches the same course over and over again. And I told the last meeting of that class, which was an honor section this semester, that it actually was my favorite course to teach. There are many reasons for that. The course was perceived originally as a course that introduced, as you said, students from various backgrounds to Jews and Judaism. And for me, it's that and much more. It's a course that I hope students take away the understanding that studying something that was foreign to them, or in the case of Jewish students that they thought they knew, studying about it at the university level opens up new doors, new windows, and so forth. I often, in more recent years, I don't know if I did it in your class, would end the class by saying, after I quote Hillel, I would go on and say, now go take music. Okay, so I, I just want students to understand and appreciate, which is something we ought to talk about, just what's in front of them in these four years. And so opening the, the, the door to understanding of Jews and Judaism was my way of not necessarily getting my more advanced students, although they usually came out of that class. And so that was one, certainly a personal benefit from teaching the course over and over again. My graduate students would even sit in on that class to see how such a course the way that I thought it should be taught. But for both Jewish and non-Jewish students, and I think I probably had more non-Jewish students over the years than Jewish students, um, but for both, I appreciated how in a safe space they could study something about a people whom they perhaps didn't know anything about, a religion they thought they knew about, or they wanted to know about without a person who's trying to convert them or sell them a certain type of Judaism. I, as you know, I have a long discussion of um, the origins of Christianity within the context mm -hmm. of that course. Major turning point from Jewish students and Christian students in that class. I got so much feedback over the years about that. I even had uh, some of my own kids' classmates in that class. I can tell you that I distinctly remember here these kids went to Jewish schools like my, my own children. And, and one of them came up to me after class. He was in there with two or three of my oldest daughter's class. And uh, he came up to me and said, oh, I don't know, Professor Miller. I don't know. Like things I was saying about when I was introducing the Bible and studying it in the context of the ancient Near East and how that broadens your whole understanding of what's really going on in this yeah. text, it was like, oh, it was like threatening. And then two weeks into the class, he came over to me and said, wow, and those are the kinds of moments I've had from that class that made it worth doing over and over and over again, just to have students understand that you have to read literature of all types in a context Mm -hmm. and try to step away from it, even if you're connected to that literature. And, you know, we take, you know, that course, it goes from the biblical period through the ancient rabbis, through various traditions and practices. And then I say what happens to all of the above in the last part of the course. I never tell students, you know, what kind of synagogue I belong to or what kind of Jew I am. It's obvious I belong to some kind of traditional stream of Judaism. I, I really bend over backwards to have them understand the different paths and different understandings and different thinkers and who brought something to the table. And there is that sub-theme of, well, who are the Jews in the end? So... I think I just taught the whole course. <laughs> there's the there's the three minute version. That's a that's a great segue to uh, to talk a bit about Judaic studies at UConn. You've been involved since 1982. What what was it like then, and how has it evolved since then? This is fortuitous because I'm going through my files and transitioning to a new stage of my life and trying to figure out you know how much of my old folders I need to keep and how much I need to make room for new stuff. And I came across the ad 
that I, I responded to for the for wow. my position. Okay. And I always referred to this ad and I said I knew where it was. I didn't know where it was until last night, but I knew I had. <laughs> okay. And the ad says it was the department was romance and classical languages. I was a visiting professor in the Department of Theology at Notre Dame. Okay. And that was my first position after NYU. And this appeared in my box. Somebody thought I should see this ad. It was a visiting position. It was one-year position. Maybe it was just meant to be circulated amongst those who do Judaic studies, which was really just me at Notre Dame at the time. So uh, I look at the ad and it says, Romance Classical Languages, University of Connecticut. Yeah, I'm definitely looking for a job. And the first thing it says is Hebrew and Yiddish literature. Hmm. And I'm thinking, well, this is definitely not the job for me. I'm not really a Hebrew instructor, although, you know, I have a certain degree of fluency in, in the ancient and modern languages and had taught Hebrew actually at both Notre Dame and, and at NYU. So I, you know, there were no jobs. There were no jobs. In Judaic studies in 1982, in the early 1980s, if, if there was a job, everybody applied for it. Everybody from every specialization. So I applied for it. What was I got to lose? And... I got an interview to my real surprise. I'm not being modest, really. And I remember saying to my wife when I was leaving for the airport, something along the lines of, I'm not bringing this one home. It's not happening. Okay. <laughs> but when I arrived, I realized they were clueless. I, with, well, with <laughs> respect to those of the colleagues who are still here or still around or we're going to listen to this podcast. Um, <laughs> they were really had clueless in the sense that they weren't quite sure what they wanted this position to be. And my predecessor was a Yiddishist who had no students. Hmm. And so I sized this up very quickly. I gave a talk, a job talk on an obscure term in the Talmud, which I guess resonated with people in languages. And I must have, you know, in realizing that I had to convince them that what what I do is what you need. I'm, I was successful. So I got the job. And then for the next, I'm embarrassed to tell you how long, I was really the only person dedicated to the teaching of Judaic studies, hired to specifically to do Judaic studies. Now, I worked closely with Arnie Dushevsky, who was the director of the Center for Judaic Studies. I was associate director for many years, but I was a sociologist hired to teach sociology, and his research interests were in the modern Jewish community. So he was not hired to do Judaic studies. So the problem here at the State University was, when on earth are we going to find a second position? And that wasn't happening. And it wasn't happening when we had very few students in the 80s. Then that literature and civ class grew. And still, you couldn't make a case for another position. And the nice part about it was basically nobody was looking over my shoulder, and I was the only person in Judaic studies. And I really, you know, was able to create courses in my image, so to speak. And that went on until Arnie, to his credit, raised money for the Conover chair, which he filled for a few years, retired. And the university went on a search to fill the chair and the directorship. And I was largely interested in the academic side of things. So we brought in consultants and the consultants gave a detailed report and as to the direction we should go in. And basically they were saying that we had to build the program around my interests, meaning 
we had to go beyond those interests to medieval into the modern period. And one of the things that I convinced them of was that our department, which now was the literatures, cultures, and languages, had somebody in each section, French, German, Spanish, who had some connection to Judaic studies, whether they occasionally taught a course in Judaic studies or related to Judaic studies or were publishing in Judaic studies. So that was the the seed for the direction I wanted to go into, which was building a program within a department rather than a diffuse Judaic studies program, which had somebody in history and somebody in sociology and somebody here, there, and everywhere. We're a very interdisciplinary department. And we went on a search, hired uh, Jeffrey Schulson down in the provost office, and he would be considered an early modernist. And at the same time, we hired Susan Einbinder, who was a medievalist. So all of a sudden, there were three, not just three dedicated Judaic studies persons, but there were three senior Judaic studies persons. So we were really on the map with an unusual program because most Judaic studies programs either, as I said, are diffuse. They have centers, institutes on campuses, which brings them to get the different faculty together or have departments, or as I was trained in a department of Near Eastern uh, Studies, Near Eastern Languages and Literatures at NYU, in those days, Judaic Studies was part of that department. But nobody has a global department like we have. And that makes our program rather unique. And going forward, that's what I hope is, we already have graduated master's students and a few majors and minors, but all that was made possible by this vision really of having these different students being able to work with the German section, Hebrew and Judaic studies, and so on and so forth. Do you want to go back to Newark before I ask my I next forget question? About, yeah, well, well, <laughs> you know, talk about the tangents you get to. to I had always, I, I grew up in Newark. I grew up in the Weak Wake section, which is the same section Philip Roth grew up in. Uh, Roth is deceased and I'm very much here. But And I'm a later generation, but he lived his first 17 years I lived my first 18 years, and the greater part of those years were in roughly the same neighborhood as his in Weekwake. He talks about Weekwake in, in, I don't know, about most of his writings. Anybody who knows Roth knows about Jewish Weekwake. And, uh, and it was a Jewish section of Newark. And I always wanted to write about Newark's Jews, even before I started reading Roth. But when I started reading Roth, I said to myself, now I really want to write about Newark students. So this, this all was part of that interest in Jewish communal life and Jewish cities, Sepphoris, Chesterfield, <laughs> uh, a rural community. I, I guess it's all all came together a few years ago when the beginning of the pandemic, when HBO did uh, Plot Against America, a wonderful series, it was, although it was resonated very much with the times. And Avi and I, we put together a panel with Susan Herbst and two Roth specialists, and we did a pandemic, one of the early Zoom <laughs> symposia, and it worked out very nicely. And here I was the odd, oddball. I mean, uh, Susan Herbst, at least, is a political scientist who studies the 20th century, and uh, here's this guy thinks he knows something about Jewish communal life and Jewish communal life in the mid-20th century, and know something that Roth doesn't about Jewish Weekwake. And yes, that's entirely true. I see the old neighborhood very differently than he does, not just the period in which I lived there, which he talks about, but also the period in which he lived in, because that's 
you know, my, my dad's period and my grandfather's. We have so much in common in terms of where we're coming from, Western Ukraine and roots and Jewish, but we see the world very differently. So after that, fight against America, okay, I thought that'd be okay, I got that out of my system. And then it turns out that Philip Roth studies last year put out a note, they're doing a special on Roth and Judaism. So I sheepishly suggested to them, you know, I'm not really an expert on Roth, but this is my approach. And they said, yeah, we want it. Okay. And, and so the piece came out a couple of weeks ago and I'm already I've been asked to be on a um, symposium, Roth at 90 at the Newark Library. And it's been, the tie in here though, is again, with my course, you don't know the intersections of knowledge and you don't know where your interests are going to take you. I, there's a common thread here. I have an interest in how Text. I say text today. My my students think you know it's something there. I have to explain. <laughs> Not text, text messages. <laughs> no, right, literary text, but text messages too have a context. But mm-hmm. so I don't want to go that route. But literature and the one writing is coming from somewhere, and the context is what interests me. And trying to figure out how to eke that out of the literature—that's the challenge. Well, all of that, everything you just said in the previous few questions, actually, our entire interview really kind of perfectly lays the table for this last piece I wanted to talk to you about, which when we started emailing, you sent me this syllabus that you had created for a first year experience seminar that you thought up. As we mentioned, you are retiring and you were starting to kind of reflect on what impact you had. And I think from what we just talked about, you had a very significant impact um, on your field and on the university. So you designed this course about what students need to know about professors and society and the university in general and the importance of a liberal arts education. And right now, especially with, you know, college debt conversations happening, the decline of the working class. Why is this important for people to understand? And why do you think that that this is, you say, not only worthwhile, but essential to have in our society? So in going through those files again in the last few days, I came across a piece of paper from 1999, which I already formulated this course. Okay. Wow. These were notes to myself after teaching a freshman year experience. This is all coincidental on studying ancient history and specifically the history of Roman Palestine and ancient Israel. And I made notes to myself that really what is needed is not courses in which we're trying to pitch what it is we're interested in, but we need first courses that explain why it is we're interested in these things to begin with and why we think it's interesting for you to study any of this, not just what I'm interested in, but as I said earlier, music, art, science, doesn't really matter, all the liberal arts. And so this has been really bugging me for quite a long time. And here I come around to finally suggesting such a course, and I get it formulated and accepted as an FYE course. A festering issue for me is that students really don't fully appreciate or understand what it is these four years of college are supposed to be offering them. And I was one who was a commuting student to NYU until I was a graduate student. Uh, Maybe that made a difference. I don't know. But I threw my heart and soul into the academics. It was a kid in a candy store. And I want my students and all students to have that same experience. I know they don't. I know it's an experience, but it's not the experience that I'm talking about. 
And it's a vital experience, you know, living uh, on your own and so on and so forth. I'm not saying otherwise. But the heart of the university is the library and the classroom. And I don't think we're conveying that. And my baby boomer contemporaries don't seem to understand exactly what it is that they got either. And I know this because they're taking their kids off the campuses to see them before they've even gotten into these schools. And they're they're not seeing the classroom. I wish that the schools would open up the classroom. I would love for parents to sit on my Civ course or my uh, Roman Palestine course or any of my other classes. Show them what they're, what they're going to be doing, what kinds of things you could study at the university. The other side of this, of course, is what you alluded to, the, the public. We're, we're besieged now. We have not been successful conveying why it is this is such a valuable uh, commodity. Other than that, it's going to help you with your paycheck later on. Right. And to me, that's just not a good enough reason. I think it sells us short in what we do. I've been you know, on all these committees and involved in all sorts of academic reforms over the years and rethinking our area requirements and this and that. But I don't think we're doing a good job explaining what it is we do. And that's why we're under siege culturally. That's why people don't understand what the value of this is and why I'm not sure why it costs this much either, but uh, but whether it's <laughs> worth that much, okay? And so I came up with this idea that we should have a course dealing with a professoriate. And when you got wind of that, I was first starting to think about retirement in a serious way, and I was feeling a little guilty. <laughs> you wanted to talk to me about this course, and I was actually going to be stepping out. But I went through all the the entire process of getting this approved. I actually thought about not retiring until I taught this course, because it means that much to me. I'm still invested in it. I want to see it taught, whether I come back to teach it or somebody else teaches it. But the main idea is that it's a course on what it is that these professors do? Standing in front of a classroom, you must have heard me say this. Students just think we go home, we look up stuff, and we come back to class and talk <laughs> about it, okay? They don't understand what we are as scholars. I'm certainly talking about the, the professoriate part of the, of the university. There are different types of personnel, but, but it's the professors who really define the university academically. And our accomplishments are not sold and known enough in the general community. And the students have no clue what it is that we work on, except when we talk about it in class, which I found myself doing more and more as the years went by, because I wanted them to understand that, you know, I do exciting things, or at least things that I think are exciting. And if you think what I'm doing is exciting, you should know what so-and-so is doing in another department, another program, but you should understand this is the world of scholarship. And somehow, They've come in with this idea that it's just a glorified high school. And I try to explain that I can't do what a high school teacher does. And high school teachers really can't do what we do. Mm -hmm. Different entities, we have different responsibilities, different aims and goals. And unfortunately, that line has been, has been blurred. The real agenda here is to get across how exciting these next four years can be because there are people here who are doing really exciting things that can have an imprint and an influence, not just on how you view the world and how you view others, but what you want to do with yourself. I think that that's brilliantly well said. And 
You know, it makes me wonder, what does retirement look like for you? I imagine in some ways it's going to be more active than many people's actual career. I mean, do you have anything <laughs> big on that? You mentioned that the, the Philip Roth panel, is there anything in particular you're looking yeah, forward to yeah. in retirement? Well, I'm very much looking forward to that because that's one of those things which I kept sidelining. And I've got a whole mess of things that I started and some of them have tangential to my focus that I'm finally going to get to. One of my colleagues, close colleagues in the department said, oh, you're going on permanent sabbatical. <laughs> and I, that, that is what I've, I've been saying to everybody. That's exactly right. I'm working on two books. One is a sequel to my first book on Sephiroth. I've gone in different paths of visual purity, and I've written about rabbinic society and so forth. But coming back to Sephiroth now, that's going to frame my several decades of work on the city and its population. And I'm working on a book called Tentatively from Temple to Home to Community, which is a book explaining my take on how Judaism survives the destruction of the temple in the year 70. So that's been sidelined. I have a major grant that's been held off because of the pandemic, which the university is going to let me take advantage of in the next year to do some work in Israel. And I've got a mess of articles. I'm a musician, so I hope to spend a lot more time doing that. And I've got three daughters, each of whom has two children of their own. So I have six grandchildren now, and I think that's probably the most important emphasis in, in going forward. So I have a lot to do. Don't worry about that. Congratulations. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. And, and we can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And looking forward to all the stuff you're going to be doing in retirement. I mean, because yeah. it sounds like a lot of interesting things. Well, thank you so much for having me and indulging my interest in talking about this and that. Okay, so let's let's go all the way back to 1994. Ooh. So that's uh, 10 years before I was born. <laughs> and here on campus, September 1994, you would notice something very different about life at UConn. They you were really notice, into Nirvana? Probably, actually. Yeah, probably. One thing you would notice, though, is that there, there wouldn't be long lines in early September at the ROTC building. Now, why would there be long lines at the ROTC building? That's because in the before times, you had to register for your classes in person. Yeah. And they set up registration tables at the ROTC building. And, and before that, it was at uh, Wilbur Cross when it was a library. Mm-hmm. And that we have photos of like lines snaking out the door, down the stairs, down the lawn. Doesn't look same, like fun. Same thing with ROTC. ROTC building, uh, by the way, if you're listening to this and you're younger than I am, you probably don't know where that was, but it was on Hillside Road. It was a giant like hangar-esque structure on Hillside Road. I want to say it was, that's not where Tasker was. Oh, I think it was where the Yukon uh, Foundation building was. But fact check me on that if I'm wrong. Send me an angry DM on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> we don't do any fact checking here. I know, I know. Uh, but that was where you went to register for classes. Also, that was the ROTC building where they did ROTC. And so you had to do it in person. Now, 1994 though, for the first time, touchtone telephone registration. What? I thought you were going to say like some early computer form. This is oh, interesting. No. This was high tech stuff. Oh uh, this is from the uh, Yukon Advance, September the 2nd, 1994. Long lines at Ad Drop are officially history for Yukon students who this year have been using touchtone telephone registration for classes almost exclusively. Until the phone registration system was put in place, students who changed their minds about the courses they wanted or didn't get the classes they needed waited in line for hours at ad drop and ran around campus obtaining instructor signatures to join classes, often while missing their first few class meetings. So yeah, Touchstone went into effect, started in 94, and then in-person was gradually dropped. And that first 
uh, touchstone registration for classes from August the 15th to the 27th when you registered for classes. There were 15,323 calls made to the system, including wow. 5,000 on the first day. And it was very high tech. When I was at UConn, that was how you registered exclusively for classes. And you would get a time. You would be told what your time was. And the juniors and seniors always got the best times. Similar um, to how it works online. And now. so it was, it was kind of a nightmare when you'd have to get like one class or something and it would be full because you'd be dialing up and it would turn out the class was full. And then the first day of registration, the lines would be jammed. So yeah. You'd, would, You're just so getting busy like, signals. Yeah. You'd be getting a bit, so you'd be like calling back and it was like uh, calling a ticket master to try to, that's something else we used to do in the old days. We'd call <laughs> ticket master and we get, I did that to up to Nirvana. a few years ago. Can't I go see Nirvana? Can you tell me like, I need more details about how this works. Like, were you calling one number and then they were asking like, tell me your course department that you're looking for. And then yeah, you say it, that, and then there's like a sub menu. How, yeah, how so does like this a, actually It was like a main out? menu and you'd punch in numbers based off that. And you'd go into like separate menus yeah. from there and to try to get the, the classes in whatever department you were trying to get them. And could you and, register for all of your classes in one phone call or? Were yeah. And in theory, if you could get all your classes in one wow. phone call, but sometimes that wasn't possible. It sounds like kind of a nightmare, but less of a nightmare than waiting in line. I remember like staying up late to try to like to, uh, do it at midnight. Yeah. To try to be able to like get in there first. And it was, did uh, you have a phone in your room at the time or was it like hallway phones? I had a phone. Okay. So that's good at least. I wasn't, you gone that long ago. I know. I just don't know when these, I didn't even have a phone in my room, Tom. Oh my God. I had my, what did I, what kind of cell phone did I have as a freshman? I think it was a, I can picture it, but I don't know what brand it was. It was a flip it was, phone. It was silver. I like to picture, I'd like to mention it was like a huge car phone from the no, 80s. Like my aunt antenna. and my Grammy both had those like big, the first, the per, first person, you know who the first person with a car phone? You can guess this very easily. First person I knew with a car phone was? Uh, the Bill X Carlson. My uncle Barry. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yep. He was the first person I knew who had a car phone because he was the president of a company and fancy like that. Yep. When I was at UConn. Did you register online? Is that how you register for classes? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. I wonder when touchdown registration, because I, I graduated in 2000. That was still the way it was done. Yeah, we were only six years. I entered six years after you exited. So it really, a lot happened in that time. I wonder if when. I didn't I mean, even when did the an, internet like really catch on? I, I didn't even have to have an email address until my senior year to give you You didn't idea. even have an email address. Wow. Nope. You didn't like have one at all, like a Yukon one at all. Nope. Wow. Nope. Nope. And then (laughs) I can't even picture like how people did work before the internet. Like I can't. You have to to go to the computer lab every once in a while. You'd get an assignment that had to be on the computer. Oh, curses. I have to go to the computer lab. (laughs) Uh, Were there, were there a lot of computer labs? There must've been. There are a couple. There was a huge one in the math and science building. That was one Mm -hmm. I actually went to. And the printer was always broken. I'm sure. Yeah. Printers are still always broken. Yeah, that's true. That hasn't changed. Wow. uh, So, so give us a call at uh, 8615309 and press, press star. Touchdown registration. Um, Register you for class. If you have stories. That's how you subscribe to our podcast. That's right. (laughs) If you have stories about waiting in line for class in person, on the phone, online, feel free to share them with us on Twitter at UConn podcast or individually. I'm at TJ Breen, and uh, you can also see some uh, pictures of ye olden days at main underscore old. Did you ever put up the pictures that I asked you for, Tom? No, but I will. 
So the, the, the hotties the people are waiting. <laughs> yes. The people are demanding. Does anyone ever respond to our, our calls for stories? Once in a while, once in a while, but usually we put them out on Twitter and then people respond. Yeah. It's like people, people are waiting for us to take the first step. We've got a bunch of wallflowers. Wallflowers. I was just going to say that. <laughs> All right. I'm at Julie Bartuka. I just retweet things about hot topics and politics that make me angry. That's pretty much the gist of my, my Twitter involvement these days. So. Thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll see you in two weeks.